welcome to the Northwestern Masters of the Arts and Sports Administration Revenue Above Replacement Podcast. I'm Bryce Lindner. The coverage of sports is something that listeners to this podcast are intimately familiar with. And in recent years, that coverage has exploded in myriad ways. When it comes to coverage that a sports fan consumes, that is often as unique as the individual fan themselves. And while new forms of sports coverage like social media and athlete-hosted podcasts capture a ton of attention, an enormous amount of journalism that underpins that coverage still comes from traditional outlets. Our guest today, Ella Brockway, is someone who understands all forms of media, and more importantly, the convergence of those forms. Ella is a multi-platform editor of the Sports Desk for the Washington Post. She's a former sports editing intern at the Post, and has previously written stories for Sports Illustrated, U.S. Lacrosse Magazine, and the Ashbury Park Press. In her time covering sports, she's interviewed World Cup winners, Big Ten coaches, Big Ten athletic directors, and NFL players were reporting live from numerous sporting events from NWSL games up and down the East Coast, to the Big Ten's men's basketball tournament in Chicago, to the Holiday Bowl in San Diego. Ella graduated from Northwestern University in 2021 with a degree in journalism and international studies. During her time in Northwestern, she served as a sports editor at the Daily Northwestern and the president of the Northwestern Students Chapter of the Association for Women in Sports Media. It's amazing to have Ella on the podcast, and it's always great to see former Northwestern students and what they're doing. So we hope you all enjoy Austin's conversation with Ella Brockway. Ella, thank you so much for joining us. Really happy to to have you on Revenue Above Replacement. First question for you, I guess, coming from... New Jersey and then going to school in Chicago and now working at the Washington Post. You've lived and studied in two great sports towns. How does Washington, D.C. compare? Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate uh, the opportunity to be a guest here. And um, that's a great question. So I kind of grew up. So I grew up in New Jersey and I grew up primarily a New York sports fan. But I went through. So I was a diehard Yankees fan growing up. That was my my main team. And then I kind of went, when I was in middle school, I really was going through a lot in terms of being a sports fan. So I had a moment where I was a Celtics fan, which did not make my, I you know loved the 2008, 2009 Celtics, which did not make my New York supporting parents very happy. And then got really into North Carolina basketball. So took a venture into like ACC territory and then got really into soccer, international soccer. So then had a span of being a fan of, of team that played five hours ahead of me in England and then moved to some two, two new great sports cities in Chicago and DC. And I will say the great thing about DC is they're really, it's a great city to be in if you're interested in sports and sports journalism, just because there are, you know, you have four, you have four teams in like the major men's sports leagues. You have two soccer teams, you have um, big events that come through here that everyone likes to pay attention to. And, um, DC might, might rank pretty high and, um, you know, in terms of accessibility, it's pretty, uh, you know, the commanders aside in terms of where their stadium is located and compared to downtown is the only one that's like relatively inaccessible, but everything is pretty centrally located, which I think makes for a great sports city, you know, having grown up in New York where everything's kind of spread out and you know some stadiums are in new jersey even though they're the new york team so i think i dc might you know take the cake of all the sports cities that have been around so far 
Well, I definitely wanted to touch on your, your focus on soccer before we recorded. We were obviously talking about the, the poster in your apartment from the, the World Cup. And I think folks our age had a really interesting exposure to soccer. I don't know about you, but for me, it was like 2014, 2015, when NBC got the Premier League rights. They did like this brilliant, almost like a drug dealer strategy where for like three years, it would you could watch every single game for free and it was so easy and so accessible. So what was kind of your relationship like with soccer as you were coming into your own as a sports journalist? Yeah, it's um, it's really interesting when I think back of how my relationship with soccer started and how it's kind of evolved now. So I played like very minus, like, like very on a minor level when I was in like middle school and growing up, but I was never like a talented soccer player or anything. I never played past like fourth grade or anything. And I got into it around the time that NBC got the rights to the premier league. So I had a family friend who was a Manchester United fan and knew that I had, you know, been interested in world cups before in, um, in 2010. And then in 2014, that summer, it was like, Hey, you should check out the premier league. So I think the first game, the first like premier league game that I watched start to finish was the last day of the season in 2013 and, um, 20, yeah, 2013 when Manchester United won the league and, that I was like, okay, I'm hooked. So, you know, something about the the atmosphere all around. I didn't know anything about the soccer, like sport of soccer. Couldn't tell you what a striker was. Could not tell you like what a center back was. Could not tell you anything about like tactics or any, even the names of the players on the field. But I was so hooked by kind of everything around it from the, you know, the atmosphere, the fan culture, um, the tradition that all these soccer teams, excuse me, seem to have. And, um, so that was kind of my entry point. And then every year I would just, you know, progress and watch a little more games. Like I bought a soccer for dummies book and I was like, okay, I'm going to, cause I'd never gotten to the level of like actually learning, you know, tactics or anything like about the game of soccer. So I think when I was in a freshman in high school, I bought a soccer for dummies book and I made my friends like who played high school soccer, teach me about things so that I could learn more and more about the game. And then when I was in college, the first sport that I covered at the Daily Northwestern was men's. It was the men's soccer team. And, you know, I, I had joined the, the campus newspaper in college just wanting to cover any sport. And that was the one that happened to be open. And the team was like fine that year, but I became pretty close with the coach and some of the players. And, you know, I when I go to interview them, I'd ask them for advice or just to learn more things about soccer, like okay, what does it mean that you're playing a back five against this team? Or like, what does it mean? Like when you talk about your number six, like just very basic questions like that. And I think every year I would get a little more, a little more well-versed, whether it was from, you know, like watching some champions league games and being able to name some European teams or like being able to watch a college soccer game and being like, Oh, you know, their winger should have like done this in this situation, or this is what happens when they switch to the back three. Like I I just felt myself becoming more and more well-versed and it was really a thing that started as a really an interest that started as a fan interest. And then pivoted into something that I turned into a career. And, um, you know, once I got to my current job as an editor at the Washington, as a multi-platform editor at the Washington post, um, there was an opportunity. I arrived in 2021. So a year before the men's world cup that just happened. And there had been opportunities that, you know, I made it known. I tweeted a lot about soccer and made it known, um, that I was interested in pitching into our soccer coverage as much as I was able to. And, was able to get a lot of opportunities, you know, through the world cup happening last year. And then the women's world cup happening this year, um, just because of 
And by this time, you know, I, I can hold my own in terms of talking about soccer and covering soccer is more than just a fan who's kind of hooked by the, you know, the songs that fans sing at games or like um, hooked on that part. Then now there's, you know, it's such a global game and there's so many different aspects to it um, and all the different cultures around it, whether it's, you know, like Premier League in England or Syria in Italy or any of those fan cultures that it, of European leagues that exist here or something like the women's soccer league here. Um, so it's just such a growth area, I think, especially in this country and especially around the world. So it's been something I've been interested in since I was a, probably in middle school, but I've kind of grown my interest in soccer as I've grown professionally as well. Yeah. Something I've heard from a lot of people is that DC is a great soccer town because you've got obviously like United and the Washington spirit. And then it's also a pretty global city. So what's the experience been like for you to kind of live and work in such a thriving United States soccer market? Yeah. Well, I, I think everyone was bummed when uh, DC didn't land any games for the 26 men's world cup. I think that was a bummer, but um, it is a really great soccer city and I'm lucky at the post to have the opportunity to cover the, uh, the women's professional soccer team, the, like you mentioned, the Washington spirit, I cover them on a fairly regular basis, uh, for the post, which has been great. And also, like you mentioned, it is such an international city with so many embassies based around here that it was an awesome place to be during the world cup. There were so many, um, you, you really get to see an interesting side of American soccer culture that's beyond just, you know, like fans of MLS teams or fans of the U S national teams. There are so many different, um, kind of subcultures in, uh, in the United States in terms of, you know, some people who immigrated over here and then taught their kids about the, the like local teams that they loved growing up in Europe or in Africa. And, you know, that was really on, that really is on display anywhere during a world cup. But I think DC was a really great city to be, um, to be around for that. I think something cool about somebody like yourself who's early in their career at a, a huge legacy paper like the Washington Post is you've got your your audience that you're writing for every day in your role as a multi-platform editor, but you also have uh, a Twitter following where you can talk about like tennis posters, for example, and reach a lot of people that way. So how do you kind of distinguish your voice as as an editor and a writer and then your voice on social media? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it's um it's something that I didn't think about, uh, you know, when I first started to get a following on Twitter, I mainly built it through, um, when I was at college. So when I was in college, I was covering Northwestern for covering Northwestern sports for the, uh, for the student newspaper there for four years. And so my tweets, the majority of my tweets are about like Northwestern sports things. And then on the side, it would be, you know, like soccer or like side interest or tennis posters, like you said, um, things that I had a side interest in. And now that I've kind of transitioned in a career where I cover the things that I work on, whether it's like a pro a story that I've written or a project that I work on are much more big picture things. So, you know, now I cover a lot about soccer or I've actually write a lot about soccer. So something that was my side interest is that kind of transition, excuse me, transitioned into, um, into something that's, you know, I'm doing for my career. And I think I really saw it during the world cup. I worked on a lot of during the men's world cup that happened last fall. Um, I worked on a lot of our live coverage for the post. Um, so, you know, we'd run these live blogs during the, during every single world cup match. And those are like, I think that's an emerging, like a, a lot of institutional or legacy media publications. You'll see have these kind of live blog feeds where 
it feels like you're on Twitter and it feels like you're kind of talking with a, it feels like you're tweeting through something, but you know, you're doing it in the name of the Washington post. So I think it, there, especially at these big legacy publications, there are ways to kind of embrace the following that you've built on social media and like figure out a way to work it into the, you know, model that journalism needs. So I think that's something we're constantly working on at the post is, you know, we have so many writers who cover different things and so many reporters who like have their own specialties and have their followings on Twitter. How can we kind of, Twitter especially, how can we transition that into, you know, something that will get our subscribers like going to our website and reading that journalism. So I think, especially during the World Cup, I saw kind of how you can bridge the gap between social media and, you know, what we think of traditionally as these legacy media institutions. Definitely. Well, I know kind of looking back a little bit, especially in your time in Northwestern, like you mentioned, you had a very positive working relationship with the athletic department. I think at one point you had a section in Northwestern football game notes with your uniform breakdowns for Northwestern's record and all these different under armor uniform combinations. So for folks in the MSA program who who maybe want to work on that side of the sports industry, what do you think you learned uh, from that experience, kind of cultivating relationships with folks in the athletic department. Yeah, I think I, I I can remember the very first. So like I mentioned before, I covered Northwestern's men's soccer. That was the first game that I covered um, and or the first game that I covered for a sport that I covered at Northwestern. And my first game, I had no idea what to expect. I was, you know, a nervous college freshman who had and I had never worked really for a, a newspaper at all before. So I didn't really know what I was going into, but I wanted to be extra prepared. So I walked into a press box and I had two like blank score sheet, blank scocker score sheets, like, uh, printed out. And I spent the whole game, like recording every single stat possible. So like, if there was a tackle, I filled it out. Like if there was like, I don't know, like a good pass, I highlighted it and wrote it down. And, at the end of the day or at the end of the game, I had like four pages of game notes that I had just written by myself. And I will never forget the um, sports information director at that time of the men's soccer team was uh, Ray O'Connell. And he came up to me after he was like, I have never seen anyone take four pages of game notes like during us men's soccer game. And like, I do game notes for my job. Like, and so I think establishing relationships was such a key part of, you know, or re- establishing those relationships early was such a key part of it. I, you know, Ray was, I mentioned him, but he was someone I worked with or I ended up working with all through four years at Northwestern and establishing from my journalism side, you know, establishing that early connection of proving, you know, like I want to be, I want to be here and I don't want to break any boundaries and I don't want to, you know, do anything that would endanger this relationship. Cause I know, you know, we both, would benefit from a strong relationship. So I think establishing that really early was something that totally paid off by the time, you know, I was covering the football team at a bowl game and there were tons of national media there, you know, like showing up to everything that I possibly could, um, you know, just having really positive relationships was and starting those strong early, I think was like a huge factor in everything that would come for me in Northwestern. Yeah, it's so funny you keep talking about Northwestern soccer because I remember that was my first game I covered too. And I remember like interviewing Tim Lenahan after the game and I was so nervous and he called. I think we played, we were playing DePaul and he called it the Chicago Derby. And I got so I was like, oh my God, I know what that means. I didn't know what that meant two days ago, but I know what it means now. And yeah, I think for anybody who comes to Northwestern by virtue of 
some of the programs that do really well year after year, like women's lacrosse, field hockey, you're going to have a chance to immerse yourself in a sport that you probably don't know a whole lot about. And I think I've noticed like when you take it seriously and put in the work, like you described it, it can catch a lot of people's attention. So turning our focus to women's lacrosse for a second, like you obviously had a chance to cover that program pretty intimately when you were at Northwestern. And then what was it like to kind of make the move to USA lacrosse and take more of a national focus on a sport like that? Yeah, for sure. So lacrosse is actually kind of the opposite of soccer. Lacrosse is something that I've been, I've been playing that for kind of all the time I'd grown up and I stopped playing in high school and started covering high school lacrosse when I was still in high school. So it's always something that I've, um, a sport that I've really loved and, you know, even more so than basketball or football in some sense, like lacrosse is the thing that I wanted to cover when I got to Northwestern. I'd been, you know, reading about that program, like ever since I picked up a lacrosse stick, even though I was in New Jersey, Northwestern lacrosse just has such a, you know, historic reputation in the sport. Um, so I started covering Northwestern lacrosse my freshman year. So that was 2018, I want to say. Yeah. And, you know, the program had been kind of in this middle ground ever since it had joined the big 10 kind of finding its footing again, after all the, you know, the seven championships that of the early 2010s and mid 2010s. And it was in a kind of transition moment. So I think I was lucky to come in at a time when, you know, the program was just starting to be on the rise again. And like I mentioned in my previous answer, it was a lot of like, I was showing up for every media availability that they had really trying to get to know some of the younger players too, like the players who are my age, who are freshmen. I just kind of introduced myself really early and tried to get my face around so that, you know, hopefully I could continue covering through the uh, covering that team and program through the time I was at Northwestern. So just, you know, making sure they knew who I was early and um, knew that I knew about the sport and, um, that I was still willing to learn from it, but also that I wasn't just showing up and, you know, had zero clue what I was writing about. Um, and then my first opportunity to work for us lacrosse, um, came, at, came in 2019. So Northwestern had made it to the final or was making it to the final four. And I had an opportunity that someone had someone at USA lacrosse had read one of my stories like one of my feature stories that I'd written as a freshman about Northwestern lacrosse and reached out and see, uh, to see if I wanted to, you know, freelance and cover, uh, I think it was the elite eight game against Syracuse. I'm going to guess it was. Um, but that was my, so I wrote that story for them freelanced and that was the first national byline that I'd ever received. And it was really exciting and it was, it felt very full circle, you know, a sport that I had played so much as a kid and really grown up loving. And then, seeing a transition into a career opportunity was great. And then um, I continued to write Northwestern lacrosse related stories uh, my junior year of college, which was 2020. And then in 2020, fall of 2020, I uh, was offered to come to USA lacrosse as a contributor and they USA lacrosse, or it was us lacrosse magazine at the time had a really robust kind of coverage of the men's game. So a lot of contributors, you know, um, lots of freelance writers pitching in and doing columns and stories and stuff, but they were really trying to build out their women's coverage and they wanted someone who was, you know, not only able to, you know, file two stories a week or something, but also who was based in the Midwest. And I think, you know, the Midwest is such a growing lacrosse area, you know, it used to be just Northwestern as the dominant program, but then, you know, Notre Dame was really on the rise that, that time. Um, even some other schools like 
Colorado was like a lot of schools were at were growing at that time. So kind of being in the central time zone was something that they were interested in. Um, and then, yeah, so fall 2020, I started doing like one or two stories a week. And that was probably my like one of definitely one of the favorite jo- jobs I've had in journalism. It involved a lot of, you know, I get on these calls at the start of the week with my editors and we, you know, look at all the games or look at try to find a story that, um, you know, seemed compelling to us. And then I'd spend the whole week reporting it. And, um, it was a lot of, you know, lots of email back and forth with, uh, athletic departments trying to get coaches and players on the phone on short notice. But a lot of the stories ended up being really rewarding. And, you know, some of them were more basic along the lines of, you know, this team is off to its first like two and out start in a while, but every now and then you would land there. I, I would find a story about, you know, a player who'd come back from three ACL tears and was like playing in her first game in like 2000 days or something crazy, or, you know, a player who had lost a teammate and like a high school teammate and was able to, you know, honor her memory by playing in this game. So I think that was, and then I was still able to do like game coverage every now and then, especially of Northwestern, but being able to work on those features and just kind of hop in and virtually embed with the team for a week for lack of a better phrase was definitely one of the like best experiences I've had in journalism and working for them for a year was just really awesome. Well, keeping in mind that there was definitely a global pandemic in the middle of this, what was kind of your, your entrance then to the Washington post and that opportunity? Yeah. So I was offered the, I had applied for the post internship for a sports, just a generic sports internship at the post um, in fall 2019. So like before the pandemic had even started, um, that was just, I was a junior in college and I was just, you know, applying to every internship under the sun and decided to take a stab at that one. I'd heard that, you know, um, it's, it's kind of tough during internship season, no matter what industry you're in, but you know, a lot of the bigger media internships, you'll hear that like, Oh, they'll never accept you unless you're a senior or unless you have 10,000 like previous jobs or things like that. So I just kind of threw an intern or threw an application there and hoped for the best. And then I got offered it in a sport. I had applied for the general like sports reporting internship. And then I got offered uh, the opportunity to come on as a sports editor or sports editing intern in fall 2019. And then the pandemic happened and that internship program was kind of scrapped for the summer. So they, um, you know, offered the opportunity to us in 2021. So I spent a lot of the summer of 2020, you know, I was still working for USA lacrosse magazine, um, doing a lot of like summer features for them, like doing some other freelancing for, you know, local outlets in New Jersey, just trying to get reps and keep writing in whatever way that I could before the school year started. And then I finally came to the post in right after graduating college. So, uh, June, 2021 and started as a sports editing intern there and then transitioned to full-time after that. Is there a pretty healthy Northwestern contingent for especially journalism alumni in DC? Cause the one that I know is, and it's, I hate saying this cause it makes me sound like I'm 80 years old, but when I was the year after I graduated, Andrew Golden was like the one of the RAs at this high school program, sheriffs, which I did when I was in high school. And then he was like a rising sophomore. And now I'm like trying to follow because my favorite baseball team played the Nats a couple of weeks ago. And I was trying to follow the game and I was like following his tweets. 
totally incidentally of him being somebody who was, I knew when he was 19 and I'm like, wow, I need to retire. But what is that alumni network like for you in DC? Yeah, well, I will start off by saying that a Andrew, so Andrew and I were the same class at Northwestern. He's one of my best friends and he's now a, he covers the nationals for the post. So he's, um, he's definitely one of he, we interned at the same time and then both transitioned to full-time in October, 2021. So he's been one of my best friends and he's been one of my best friends since we both did cherubs together in 2016. So, which is, you know, the cherubs world is extremely small, but that was kind of where I first got my introduction to Northwestern and even sports journalism was at that summer program. So that's where I met Andrew for the first time. That's where I found out about Northwestern. That that was the starting point for me, for anyone who knows that. And you obviously do. Um, But yeah, the, um, the alumni, uh, network is great. So there were, um, I think four of us who started in that summer 2021 internship program, there were four of us, so two in sports and then one in video and one in the foreign department who all eventually transitioned to full-time, uh, at the post. And then in our actual department, um, Ava Wallace is the wizards beat writer for the post. And, um, she's actually really good friends with Kaylin, who was on the podcast a few weeks ago. Um, And she, I want to say she graduated like 2013, like she was, but she was, and she was like, um, it's so funny to think back to it, but, um, I was like a member of the association for women in sports media chapter at Northwestern and Ava would come and talk to us like right after she had graduated, or it was a few years after she had graduated, but she would talk to us about the post and talk to us about, you know, entering the world of journalism after, uh, being in college. And now, you know, we have a desk or our desks are like a few desks away from each other at the office. So, um, there's a really robust, uh, population of Northwestern people in DC and just journalism in general, obviously, but, um, in DC, especially too. Yeah, that's definitely, I think a big value of going to Northwestern and doing this program, um, the people that you meet and the fact that like when i started doing this podcast they were like yeah like talk to people in your network and i was like i'm only a teenager i'm 26 and i was like well i guess i do know some people who have gone on to do some pretty cool things so yeah it's been it's been a real blessing but um bringing it all the way back to soccer kind of where we started like what has been your favorite part of covering the spirit and the nwsl as that we continues to just take leaps and bounds every season yeah, I think that has been something like I when I started as an intern, it was something I had always been, you know, a big fan of the US women's national team and then slowly getting more and more well versed in soccer. I got more and more well versed in the women's soccer space. Um, and learning more about the NWSL. I covered uh after the 2019 World Cup, I had been uh interning at a USA Today network paper in New Jersey, and I covered a lot of the um the team used to be called sky blue and is now called Gotham, but, um, the New Jersey, New York team, I covered a lot of them in the summer after the world cup and was realizing, you know, women's soccer, especially was a space that I was really interested in. And so when I finally got to the post, I was like, you know, my main job is in editing, but I would love an opportunity to cover the spirit every now and then. And slowly that just turned into covering more and more spirit games. And it, it really is such a, um, such a growing league and, um, you know, we just hit the 10 year mark of there. I think the league is starting its 11th year. And even in the time since I covered my first game, which was August, 2021 was the first spirit game I covered. And that was out in Virginia, like at a small stadium, a small 5,000 seat stadium. 
And this year they finally just moved to Audi Field, which is, you know, a 20,000 seat stadium in downtown DC. So that's like a very clear progression that has happened in just the span of two years. And, you know, I'm really excited to be in DC and be at the post for a women's world cup year. I think that was, you know, kind of when I was during the 2019 world cup, when I was at a previous internship, I was just, you know, pitching, trying to pitch stories left and right. And there's such a boon of interest, like when it comes to the women's world cup, whether it's in the U S women's national team or kind of after the world cup, that real boost of interest or boost that you see, um, and just popularity in the league after people spend a whole summer watching women's soccer. So I'm really excited about that and to see kind of, you know, this is going to be a bigger world cup than we've ever seen, both in terms of, you know, like actual number of teams playing in it, but also in just like sheer volume of interest that it's going to generate. So I'm really excited to be in DC for that and kind of continue to see the, the growth of the, the spirit locally speaking, if that makes sense. Well, what do you, you and the department kind of have planned in terms of coverage for that Women's World Cup? I know it's coming up in, I think, two or three months. Yeah, so we're um, we're sending three or four people plus. And I think the other perk of being at the Washington Post is, you know, we have a huge foreign department that is trying to, you know, when there's a World Cup in Qatar, like we can have people from the Asia Bureau chip in. And, you know, when there's a Women's World Cup in Australia, we can have people from that chip in and, you know, people who are based in England or Europe can contribute stories about the places that they cover. And, um, that's, that was one of my favorite aspects of the world cup was, you know, or of the men's world cup that happened last year was, you know, we'd be on these calls all day and we'd have someone in Australia talking about a story that they were pitching about the Australian team. And then we'd have someone in Argentina who was, uh, pitching a story about Messi and then our team based in the U S seeing what we could do about, you know, the U.S. national, excuse me, the U.S. men's team, like it was a real global operation. And during these kind of massive global events, the scale of the post really hits you. Um, But in terms of, um, so we'll have three to four people down uh, in Australia and New Zealand. We have a lot of um, preview content that we're working on about the U.S. women's national team specifically, both, you know, player, or excuse me, player profiles that we're looking at, you know, some kind of, uh, deeper soccer stories. So, you know, we had a lot of success during the, um, during the men's world cup with kind of tactical breakdowns and giving like your average casual fan, like a a deeper look at, you know, the actual sport of soccer. So we're trying to do, um, some of that as well for this tournament, you know, um, some bigger picture pieces that are looking at the growth of, uh, or bigger picture projects, excuse me, that are looking at the growth of women's soccer. Like I mentioned, this is going to be, you know, there are more teams in a world cup in a women's world cup this year than there have ever been before. And it's such a fascinating moment for the growth of the women's game around the world that we're trying to use, um, use all of our resources, whether it's, you know, foreign bureaus or just like numbers and people that we have all around the world, um, to kind of highlight that. So I'm really excited to, to put all that together and see what we can do this summer. Do you know what the hours will look like for you yet? I haven't checked the kickoff times, but I could see that being, hey, I'm going to get to work at 10 o'clock. I don't, I don't really yeah. know what that's going to look like for you, but I'm curious. So, yeah, I usually work at night anyway, um, which is, um, you know, so much of sports, especially local sports happens at night. Um, and uh, so I think the, especially in the group stages, uh, the U.S. women's national team's times aren't 
too terrible. Like I think most of their games start somewhere in like the 9 p.m. to 10 or to 12 p.m. like window uh, on the East Coast. I know their third group game starts at 3 a.m., which is, you know, not ideal. And I was here during the um, I've been here during the I was at the post um, in the Tokyo Olympics in 2021 and then the Beijing Olympics in 22. And uh, those were not very friendly time zones either um, and involved uh, quite a few 4 a.m. wakeups, especially in Tokyo for the women's national team. And uh, so not ideal, but, you know, we'll make it work. And I think it'll be, a, you know, Australia and New Zealand are both such amazing places that it'll be worth it to, you know, for the tournament to happen there, even if it's some brutal time zones for us on the East coast. I'm really excited for people to experience such a specific soccer feeling of being really upset and really sad at like eight 45 in the morning. Yeah. Your day's over because there's a tweet about that where it's like every time the U S national team is playing, you'll see somebody tweeting like, this is an absolute disgrace. And it's like, 8.45 in the morning. Um, so that'll be fun. Yeah. No, it's funny. I remember during the Tokyo Olympics, um, the U.S. women's national team lost its first game and uh, lost its opening group stage game. And it was like a 4 a.m. start. And I was so grumpy for the whole rest of the morning. I was like, I can't believe I have to go about my day. And it's like uh, 7 a.m. And I'm already in this terrible mood. But then, you know, on the flip side, I they had also they also had an early start for I think it was their quarterfinal or semifinal game in the Olympics against the Netherlands. They won it in a penalty shootout. And I was like, oh, my God, it's like 730 in the morning and I've never been in a better mood. So, you know, you kind of have to deal with the the positive and the negative side. So it's either going to be a really tough morning for you or a really good morning for you. And you you take the positives when they come. I think something you touched on earlier is like you could probably watch this entire World Cup and not know what a false nine is and it wouldn't really you could still enjoy it. But it seems like there's a real appetite for like tactical breakdowns. Do you think that's because the U.S. soccer fan is like maturing or is it just sort of a taking a more holistic perspective to a really, really important tournament? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of both. I think we're um, fortunate, especially, you know, we've really seen it on the men's side and now we're starting to see it on the women's side in the United States. We're started like the soccer media landscape has total and, you know, people who I work with at the post who have been covering MLS and just us soccer since the nineties can even like, I'm sure they would even tell you more so like of how much the soccer media landscape has changed. But even in the past, you know, 10 years since I started really following the sport, it, there's, if you want your intense tactical breakdown, there's a place for you to find that. If you want like a basic summary of, you know, this is what happened in this game. Like there's a place for you to find that. If you want something that's just going to give you enough to be like the smartest casual fan at the soccer bar that you're going to watch this world cup game at, like there's a place, there's an outlet for that. And we're in an interesting position. I think at the post where we try to, you know, um, we don't try to do everything, but we try to do a little bit of, um, you know, give you a taste of a tactical breakdown if that's what you're interested in and then give you, you know, some human interesty context about the teams that you're watching, like some behind the scenes stories of players, but also like give you the hard news. And, you know, this is what's happening with this player's status or this player's injury. So I think if you look at just where the media landscape of soccer is in this country is really impressive and caters to a lot of different kinds of fan and is, you know, just having all of those options has, in my opinion, made a really smarter soccer fan. I think we're starting to see that, you know, I can't even remember like what the media landscape looked like for the women's world cup in 2019. And, you know, if you wanted 
to, you know, learn more about Jill Ellis's tactical formation that she was sending out against the Netherlands. Like you had to go digging to try to find that. And now I think, you know, when it's the world cup, you know, first game of the knockout stage, if the U S advances, you'll be able to find information on, you know, who Vladko Adonofsky is playing as a defensive midfielder. Like you'll be able to find that much easier than you would have been, you know, say four years ago. And I think that's only, you know, benefiting the, um, the soccer fan in the U S yeah, I did not mean to turn this into just like a soccer talk podcast. So one more question and then I'll get out of this. But I I think it's funny because not many people grow up in this country with like a Friday Night Lights equivalent for soccer. You kind of discover that literature as you get older. And so like I personally love that soccer book that comes out every four years for the World Cup. I like devour that. So I'm curious for you as somebody who writes about it every day, what soccer books have informed you as kind of a fan and a soccer reporter? Yeah, actually, the one of the books I'm looking at my bookshelf right now, of some of the ones that have um, hit me the most. I am a soccernomics fan. Um, that was kind of a great intro to, you know, the like you said, just basically the economics behind the game and learning all these kind of different layers, especially of, you know, the men's professional game and just how much is happening there and how it you know, how it becomes the biggest sport, uh, in the world. I really loved, um, anything by David Goldblatt. He's one of my favorite soccer writers. So, um, he wrote the ball is round and the game of our lives. Those are two, uh, excellent ones. When I was studying abroad in Spain, I became a big Sid Lowe fan. So he writes for the guardian and ESPN. And he wrote a book, uh, called fear and loathing in La Liga, uh, about the rivalry between Barcelona and Real Madrid that's a great, um, you know, there's so many great books about the, uh, you know, kind of the culture layers behind the global game of soccer that are so excellent that that and, um, Simon Cooper's who also is, he's one of the writers of soccernomics. He wrote a book about Ajax that is also like fantastic. And I'm trying to think if there's any other ones that are on my bookshelf as we speak. Um, when I was first getting into soccer, I was a I'm still am a huge men and blazers fan and they have a encyclopedia of, you know, basic soccer knowledge. So even when I was, once I had gotten pretty into soccer and I was trying to teach my dad about soccer, I was like, you know, here's a book that has exactly your kind of dad humor that you will love and that I loved. So that is another one that like I push on the basic soccer fan. Um, and yeah, I think those are, I loved, you know, Grant wall was my favorite soccer writer. Um, and it was such a tragic loss to lose him in last year that, um, you know, I love his books, but I also just loved his general writing on the game. So, you know, if there are ever any new soccer fans out there and I, you know, I did this with my dad too. I was like, here's a bunch of sports illustrated links to some of Grant Rawls early soccer stuff. And, um, he was just one of the greats. So, and there's so much, you know, that's the other beautiful thing about soccer is it's so global that like you can read so many different writers and they transport you in a way that like great sports writing does. Um, no matter, you know, if you're writing about a game in the United States or a game in Europe or a game in, you know, Thailand or something like it's such a global game that you're bound to find great writing wherever it exists. So. Yeah, absolutely. My dad and I talk all the time about how it's like a social currency that you can cash in anywhere in the world. And it's just, it's awesome. Um, Yeah. Well, I guess just kind of to start wrapping it up, I'm curious, like looking at 
kind of Northwestern, what were some of the experiences you had maybe that didn't seem like a big deal when they were happening to you on campus, but really, really set you up for your career? Because I think sometimes there are these big, shiny internships or things people think they have to do. And I, I personally feel like sometimes it's what you what you discover after you don't get the thing you thought you had to do that really can set things in motion. So I'm curious what those experiences were for you. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so, you know, my most formative experience at Northwestern was definitely joining the Daily Northwestern. And that opened, um, not only opened so many doors, but it created so many paths for me. And um, that was probably like the chiefly most, you know, rewarding experience for me at Northwestern. And obviously, I was in Medill. Um, so I took a lot of classes in Medill and met a lot of professors who, you know, were um, just like life changing in the sense of, you know, they helped me become a better journalist and helped me become a better person. But I think, you know, when I think back to my four years at Northwestern, just the most valuable experience was being on campus and being able to meet so many different kinds of people. So some of the most rewarding experiences I had were in clubs that weren't the daily. So I was in, um, I was in a club and this kind of, you know, helped me get even more into soccer when I was uh, in college. I was in a club called Northwestern World Cup that stages this, um, you know, massive thousand person soccer tournament every year, or at least it did in the, um, the pre-pandemic days. Um, and I had, you know, just seen it at a club fair and been like, oh, yeah, I like soccer. Like, I'll try to join this club. And it ended up giving me some of the best friends I made in college and exposed me to like that was where I made the majority of my friends who weren't journalists or who, um, you know, weren't also in Medill or who really like grew up all around the world. And that was like one of the most rewarding experiences I had working in Northwestern or just being in college at Northwestern was working in that club. And then eventually working on like an executive, uh, an exec board like role for that club. So I think the opportunities that, Northwestern gives you to meet just people you would never have met before if you aren't weren't all you know tied to this place um was the most impactful thing that's happened to me and you know I realize it now that I'm kind of out of the college bubble like it's trickier once you leave like a place like that to just meet people who are from all over and who have like this common thread with you and you know the common thread can be a love of soccer it can be just the fact that you go to Northwestern and are living in the same place at the same time and I think that's the most, you know, special and unique thing about that school and being on that campus was the amount of people you can meet. And, um, you know, the, the environment of the school just really like facilitates that and encouraging you to meet people in that way. Definitely. What have kind of been some of the the biggest, maybe learning on the job moments for you since you graduated and kind of moved into this role with the, with the post? That's a great question. Yeah. So, um, my job is in editing and I had done some editing internships, uh, beforehand, but had never like, you know, editing for your student newspaper that prints it out, you know, when you printed newspaper five days a week and all of your colleagues are your best friends who also happen to work in this club, like is very different than, you know, making a newspaper that has super hard deadlines and has a very like, you know, way of doing things that it's been doing for a hundred years. So that was like an obvious, um, learning curve that I had to get over was just, you know, like adapting to the speed and pace of a, a professional news product that has to be put out every day, no matter what. Um, but I think, you know, uh, something that I didn't do too much of in college, I've mentioned before, but, you know, um, 
we do a lot of live content and live blog content at the post and, you know, you'll see it. The Times does it too. Um, pretty much every other major sports outlet does it as well. Um, and just kind of getting, whether it's, I've, you know, been a writer on some live blogs and then I've been editor, like I've been an editor for live blogs and just having the skill or, you know, working, working your way to be, become adept at live content is, excuse me, live content is like a a skill that just takes a lot of reps and a lot of time. So, you know, you have to be working as an editor, like physically like editing for grammar and for style of like a person who's sending you things live from the Super Bowl. But then you also have to make sure everything's factually correct, but you also have to make sure, you know, okay, this is what Google trends says that you should be like writing about right now. There's so many different factors. And I think the first, like, live blog opportunity I had at the post was just, you know, a very generic, I think it was like a Wimbledon semifinal or something in the summer of 2021. And then eventually I was, you know, anchoring our Super Bowl coverage or anchoring our live Super Bowl coverage or our live, you know, Damar Hamlin coverage, like building your way up and just knowing how to work your brain in so many different directions was such, um, that was a big learning curve, but it's something that I feel like I've really grown in, in my two years here. And it really is such like an essential part of journalism now is being able to, you know, like see what readers want and what will keep readers, you know, with you and not just like hopping to Twitter or hopping to someone else's live blog. So it's a, it's an interesting balance of all the things that you kind of have to keep in mind. Absolutely. And I'm mean, just to, just to end it. I mean, I'll, I, I think no question causes me more professional or personal anxiety than my next move. So I'll phrase it differently. Like what, as you kind of view down the road of your career, what are the the passions that you want to lean into? Is it soccer coverage? Is it kind of the the live blog, more Twitter model that you described? Like what kind of inspires you? Yeah, that's a great question. I really love, um, one of the things I love most about the post is that, you know, we are able to bridge the gap between we have really robust and strong local coverage while also kind of establishing ourselves as a national voice on things. So, you know, you will find your stories about the nationals and you'll find your stories about the wizards and stuff, but you'll also find your stories about, you know, like a random pickleball league in Montana or um, like some really niche sports store or, you know, this trend that's happening in major league baseball or, you know, this, uh, this story of like a horse in the Kentucky Derby, like you will find your national angles on stories while also, you know, you will find your high school sports coverage in our paper and you will find our extremely knowledgeable beat reporters. So I love being able to, I, I probably lean in that. I love the, those like wide ranging national stories the most. And I, you know, when I was in college, my dream was always to work for like a a sports magazine. So, you know, Sports Illustrated at its heyday and sports, uh, ESPN, the magazine in its heyday. And I think, you know, just based on the way that the industry is trending, you're seeing a lot more of those kind of stories transition into like digital sites. So whether that's, um, you know, those kind of longer form stories, they really still exist and they're just taking like slightly different forms. So I love being involved in those, whether it's, you know, writing, uh, being the person who writes them or being the person who edits them or working on these kind of big projects. So I like anything that kind of, I, I really like those kind of wide ranging, trendy national stories. And um, I love being able to contribute to them at the post. And, um, you know, in terms of like, I, I love world cups. I love Olympics. I love these big global scale events and I'd love to cover them in person one day. And that's probably like the next big cross off thing on my bucket list. Um, would be to be at one of those 
big scale global events, but, um, yeah, I, I think the post is a really cool place to be able to get a little bit of everything. And that's what I like to, you know, be able to do is see a little bit of everything. Awesome. Ella, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Of course. Thanks so much for having me. This is great. Yeah.